Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mamin. On this week's show, we're talking about how jokes work on television. And later, we're joined by Giovanni Ribisi, star of Amazon Sneaky Pete. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt Solar Sites. Hey, Gazelle. Hey, Matt. Vulture TV columnist Jen Cheney. Hello, Gazelle and Matt. Hello, Jen. And we're very happy to have Vulture senior editor Jesse David Fox with us today, who's here to talk to us about jokes on TV. Hey, Jesse. Thank you guys for having me. Of course. And you know, you can also catch Jesse on a brand new Vulture podcast called Good One. It's a podcast about jokes, and it's starting next Monday. And you should February thirteenth. Sh- February thirteenth, uh, Galentine's Day. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> Galentine's Day special for all the gals in your life. It's the day after Girls premieres. No, I think Girls is the nineteenth. No, it's the twelfth. Are they? <laughs> is that true? It is true. All right, that makes sense. Yeah. If anybody knows, it's Gazelle. That's <laughs> <laughs> yes. true. Can you tell us a little bit about? Oh, the sure. Show? The podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, so it's a podcast about jokes. Uh, every episode, I have a comedian on who picks one of their jokes, and then we talk through it for a, a while. Jim Gaffigan, I believe, will be the first episode. Uh, Neil Brennan, co-creator of The Chappelle Show, is going to do it. Christian Schaal, Paul Feig, uh, the director of uh, Bridesmaids and Ghostbusters, is going to do it. Uh, and it should be really fun. It's, uh, it's really kind of about the process of writing jokes and the philosophy of writing jokes and... It's fun if you like that type of stuff. And if, if you like the type of stuff, I think this conversation would be a good yeah, intro to it. Yeah, and I I agree. I was going to say we're going to be um, getting a little taste of what Jesse will be offering on his podcast a little later on the show today. Yes. Before we get into all of that, it is time for this week's prompt. And oh, my goodness. What will it what be? What could it be? <laughs> what will it be now? The suspense is killing me. <laughs> so today our producer Jordan is asking us, which TV family would you like to have grown up with? Whoa. Yeah. Gosh. It's a deep one. Jeez. <laughs> huh. Any Anyone want to go first? No. I, I will go first <laughs> if no one else will. Please, Jen. Well, I, you know, my initial thought was I was going to say the Keatons from Family Ties, but then I thought, you know, I had such a crush on Michael J. Fox that being related to him would have really <laughs> been a problem. So... I have to give the cliche answer that makes me sound like a Reality Bites character, but it's it's the Brady Bunch. Like, that was the oh, first family yeah. I remember watching. And, you know, I love that there were so many siblings and such a big family, which was different from my own experience. I only had one older brother. Um, I loved their ridiculous late 60s, 70s house. I love those stairs that came down. Like, I, I just love the whole the whole idea of being part of that family because everything always seemed to work out just so nicely at the end of the half hour. And if you got lost in the Grand Canyon, you had a people would find you. Like, I don't know. <laughs> they had such a nice yard too. Yes, they did have a nice yard. <laughs> they had a nice like playground or something. Yeah, that's an amazing house. We should we, next time we should ask like which house would you want to live in? Mm, yes. <laughs> How about you, Jesse? Um, immediately, I was like the Jetsons because then you get because <laughs> oh. then you get to live in the future. They have uh, like robot chefs making you breakfast and like everything is like very mid-century modern but also in the future uh they were nice and like sitcom family but i think most of it was just like oh what's the future like pods and jetpacks jetpack (laughs) and i feel like no other uh most sitcom families don't offer as much at least in terms of jetpacks that's true Well, I'm torn between, you know, is it a material is it a material circumstantial thing or is it like the relationships? And I think like all things considered, I think I would have to go with the Chase family from my so-called life. Mm. You know, the relationship mm. between the parents and the kids on that show was not always the greatest, but I thought they were really good parents. I thought they were good. Like they listened, they cared, they were interested. You know, they had their own things going on sometimes, but who doesn't? You know, just like as real world parents, I thought they were very, very good. My original answer was going to be um, the Ingalls family from Little House, Little, Little House on the Prairie. That's my answer. The Ingalls. Okay, well, <laughs> yeah. But, but the problem with that is, I, 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 I think like the love that radiates from within that household is fantastic. But then there's the downside, which is you could get like eaten by a bear or right. something. Well, I think what I liked about it was it's it's kind of this romantic vision of like family, and even though they're poor and everything is. And, you know, it's in the past, so, like, it's not as advanced as as you said. You could get eaten by a boar. 
But there's this like palpable sense of like they have each other and Laura and her sister sleep in a bed together. And it's just it feels like so warm and nice. And something about that was always very compelling to me as a kid. And and also like even like it wasn't so romantic that it was just everything was nice all the time. Like yeah. they got real lessons from Ma and Pa that like <laughs> felt. You're already calling them Ma. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I've taken this fantasy a little too far. <laughs> yeah. So that is this week's prompt. And uh, listeners, if you'd like to weigh in on this week's prompt or suggest a prompt for a future week, email us at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. Next up, we're talking jokes on TV. We'll be right back. So, Jesse, Jesse, you launched a second installment of the Vulture series, The Hundred Jokes That Shaped Modern Comedy, this week. Mm-hmm. And it's a great series. And we wanted to talk to you a bit about some of the jokes on that list that happened that happened on television, but also more broadly, just how jokes operate on TV comedies today. Yeah. And, you know, one thing you and I were talking about before the show is just this idea that gets talked about a lot, that there's this perception that comedy isn't really, comedies aren't funny anymore. Like what happened to the funny comedy is like a a trend piece that some have been writing. Um, you know, and or like there's the SNL sketch where they're like making fun of Transparent, which was like your new hit comedy. And it was like this I can't, it was a Tom Hanks episode. It's like the saddest possible show. And they're like, it's a new comedy. <laughs> that's 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 yeah, that's the kind of show that I call the comedy in theory. Yeah, the comedy in yes. theory. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, so I wanted to, I mean, talk about, you know, the state of comedy in comedies in television um, and if there's if they still exist, if they don't still exist. Well, it seems like there's maybe more like there's there's a lot of different types of funny on TV and it like the types of shows that get described as not funny, like Transparent or Louie or Master of None even or High Maintenance. It's maybe not the type of comedy we're used to thinking of as comedy. Yeah. Where sometimes it's more situational humor Funny Strange as opposed to Funny Home. Yeah, Hall. exactly. Right. Like Atlanta even. Yeah. That that show, like, Jesse, I remember you talking about it, like... It's off. It has, you know, a lot, what a lot of the shows are doing, you know, there's essentially, they create tones that are not dramas. And, like, it's hard to describe that as, like, it's maybe they, some have jokes, you know, Atlanta will have, like, a couple jokes. Mm-hmm. That, and, and it's probably partly because Donald Glover has written for, like, hard sitcoms, like 30 Rock um, and was on Community. But, you know, like, Transparent is a comedy because it's a comedy. You know, like, it, you, you might not laugh, but you smile in certain ways that is just not a drama. I think a lot of it. And there's also, um, like, character-based comedies that, the especially the American Office, uh, Greg Daniels tried to have f- fewer jokes than kind of we expected in comedies. But you mostly, like, felt a lightness of tone. And those are kind of the I think the bigger thing is like those are the the comedies that are getting the spotlight. Right. I I think the other issue is that we used to define comedies too based purely on is it a 30 minute show? Then it's probably a a comedy or a sitcom. And that whole notion of the length of of an episode dictating what genre something is in is completely out the window now. Um, So that's part of it, too. Yeah, there was always there was always a bit of a blur. I think like, you know, Moonlighting was an hour long show, but that felt more like a comedy than a drama. Right. Most of the like probably 85 to 90 percent of the time it was clearly a con- like a farce. It was a farce. Yeah. On like a if we're looking at more like traditional sitcoms, like what how do, how does a joke structure work on that type of a show? I mean, for like a multicam, which there's fewer of, but if you watch Big Bang Theory, you can hear it. You can hear a Big Bang. It's like, na 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 laugh sound. Like, it's musical. <laughs> and it's it's something that, like, 30 Rock and um, Kimmy Schmidt do by using music cues basically the same way to kind of, like, make you feel like you're part of a rhythm. But it really is, for those that, you know, there really is, the scene's going to do this, but the rhythm of the entire conversation is going to be... Ba 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 laugh ba 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 laugh, and then you know the mult the the single cam sitcom how they structure and how many jokes they do 
really is going to be dependent on the type of comedy they want to do. You know, like you can have more room for like one big laugh at the end. <laughs> you know, it's hard to describe, but like, um, you know, there's some that are like, we're going to do a full setup punchline joke or um, you can have a more physical act that might take a longer time mm-hmm. to build. You know, Jenna and I have talked about the show Detroiters that's coming out and they have oh, a lot yeah. of like really big physical laughs. This is the mm-hmm. new Comedy Central yeah. show. Yeah, new Comedy Central with um, Tim Robinson and Sam Richardson. It's so, so funny. It's one of the funniest shows I've seen in a while. But it it has jokes and like dumb character moments, but also they'll do a lot of like big kind of physical laughs. That, you know, they'll have the two guys riding on one motorcycle together. There's lots of dancing that's maybe not great dancing. So it's interesting for those like a show like that. I think it's they're built around that. I think they're like looking at a scene and figuring out how they can put jokes into it. And I think other shows might operate kind of differently where a joke is it might be even distracting, but from the kind of overall hope of like creating comedy. Like I think The Good Place is a really interesting show for how funny it seems for how many jokes they actually have. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's maybe so, just me, but it's definitely something I noticed. Right. Like there aren't as many like haha moments basically <laughs> yeah. happening throughout. But you feel it's a comedy. Like it's yeah. definitely right. a comedy. Now, also, yeah. I've noticed sometimes on these these half hour shows that are kind of the kind of shows where if you call them a comedy, you sometimes get pushback from readers going, I didn't think that was funny. Yeah. But like Atlanta, one thing they'll do on Atlanta or uh, Better Things or shows like that is they'll have almost like little self-contained sketches or short yeah. films within the body of the episode. Like in Atlanta, I think there was a scene in the first or second episode in the emergency room where uh, Donald Glover is sitting between a oh, couple yeah. that's ar- what's arguing and like, I, why would they? <laughs> why would he be seated between them? That in itself doesn't. That's a weird situation to be in. But yeah. but the protocol of do I get up and leave or not becomes the becomes the the, yeah. the motor of suspense in that scene, and then it's all about his reactions to the you know yeah, and it's like then it's then it becomes like a political issue. It's like should I do I sit here and just suffer through this, or is it okay to leave? And it's all about what's happening on his face. Yeah, and I think you know I think it's definitely like. Those shows, I think Atlanta is probably, I mean, ex- exceptionally good at making sure that you, they have basically release valves that, as a lot of comedians talk about, where you're essentially building suspense and find out ways where you can still have some sort of release at different points. And so it's not just like a tense matter in the entire time. Right. Well, and I think Search Party is the same thing. And Jesse, I'm reminded of that moment that you talk about on Atlanta that feels like uh, kind of quintessentially sitcom-y when uh, – Ern is at dinner with his girlfriend. Oh, the, the his the mother of his child, and and he doesn't have enough money. He for doesn't it. have enough money. I mean, that is like the most sitcomy thing they've ever. Done. That's like yeah. That's like I actually in my review, I think I compared it to an I Love Lucy. Yeah. It's like an I Love Lucy situation. If it, that's how old it is. It's almost like now, in retrospect, looking at the entire season of that show, that episode was to like remind people that were like their goal was still to kind of that they're subverting the form enough and it was like a reminder that they're still in that wheelhouse because that episode is like cartoonishly yeah <laughs> like it's probably like there's probably like a Fibber <laughs> McGee and Molly episode it where is, it's... <laughs> it is, yeah I was gonna say I was actually uh, like revising what I just said thinking like actually I think Laurel and Hardy might have done that yeah, too I mean it's like the I can't as soon as they've had dating based sitcoms I imagine that has been a plot and but I think now in retrospect that was hopefully too subverted in, in whatever ways by still being true to it but the uh, moment where he's he's like, and anything for you, sir? And he's like, yeah, I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we probably like every five years a show does that. But yeah. it's it's interesting how we revisit that that joke. It's a fair. It's trope. a good joke. And those and those situations. There are certain classic. There are certain situations that have been done a million zillion times. But I never am sad to see them. Because yeah. if they're done even reasonably well, they're going to make me laugh. Like the guy who somehow ends up. Going out on a date with two women simultaneously, <laughs> like in the same restaurant or or like a restaurant. Across, it's like a Dudley Moore situation sure, from an the, 80s film. I, two plans right. on or the Mrs. same Doubtfire. night, right? Yes. Two plans on the same night is one that's like that always that never fails to slay me. First, I mean, the Flintstones is the first one I remember, but I don't know if there was a one before. It, which oh, God, there must have been. There must have been where he had bowling and he had a uh they had a date. Yes, yes. And, and sometimes <laughs> they, and, and there's always the moment where they forget which situation they're in. Right, yeah. right. You know? Oh, it's because they're wearing the wrong hat to the wrong place. Right. <laughs> <laughs> See, we're talking about a hypothetical situation and I'm laughing. So that's what an easy mark I am for that for that particular subject. <laughs> it is funny, like that kind of thing. 
I'm probably the only one of us who actively watches the Disney Channel because I kind of have to because of my son. Mm-hmm. And these kinds of situations, like on those comedies that they have that are geared at, at children, those are that's a classic thing that you would see in like a Live and Maddie or <laughs> right. any of those shows. And and I think kids respond to it like instinctively yeah. because it's it's very easy to understand and it's funny and there's often physical comedy involved in it. And that's why family sitcoms, I think, were like that because you were trying to engage everybody and kids just – some of the more sophisticated jokes they don't get when they're 8 or 9 yeah. or 10, but that stuff they do. There's another one that I just thought of, which is the um, attempting to retrieve an incriminating item <laughs> – from some place that you don't have access to. Yeah. And, and you know, I think uh, one of the great memorable examples of that recently was on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, the text emergency oh, yeah. right. episode where I guess she's trying to break into uh, Josh's, Josh's uh, house to get the, to get a cell. I mean, it's like the, the number of contrivances necessary to set up her breaking into the house are great, but it turns into uh, like just a masterpiece. It's a little absurdist masterpiece yeah. what they're trying to explain why there's glass on the floor, you know, and like all of these, you yeah. know, That's things. That's like the most sitcom episode of that. Show. But what's it's interesting great. is like, it's that, great. that joke can still work even though 10 years ago, Arrested Development hypothetically subverted it to the point where you'd think it'd be, you know, they had the episode where, uh, what's it, uh, Michael was going into the house to get legal documents and yes. Julia Louis-Dreyfus had to pretend to be blind. Which oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or what, or I can't remember Tobias exactly. was there Tobias. also. Yeah, yeah and, he was there. Oh, Justice, what is it, boy? What is it? Is there some jackass in my bathrobe? And you're like, oh, so they subvert. It's like, no, there's like constantly a well that people can kind of go to. And I think it's almost like The Simpsons probably done every single trope that ever existed. They did, but then made it fair game for, I guess. People. They did. They did. And then, But now that I think about it, I think the first time I ever saw a situation like that, and I'm sure somebody else did it before, was on I Love Lucy, a rerun of I Love Lucy, where she she sends a letter. Like, I don't remember exactly why she's sending it, but she the second she puts that letter in the mailbox, she realizes that it's that the situation has been resolved and like the letter is only right. going to make things worse. And she has to get the letter yeah. out of that mailbox. And it's a federal crime to break into a mailbox. <laughs> but of course, she's Lucy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that person who likes whatever the person is that wrote the joke didn't know that they're going to be ripped off like forever. Right. The point where it's not even <laughs> no one owns the joke anymore. You no. know, on in mm-hmm. this year in this uh hundred jokes we have the Fibber McGee and Molly has the closet joke, which is essentially Molly says, like, don't open that closet and then he opens it and you hear the noise of a lot of things crashing, which is a joke that we now just know as a joke. Like it's Right. I, I actually I didn't know until recently that's where it's from. But there are these jokes that be kind of uh you don't know where they started, but they just become certain tropes that kind of reused. Uh my personal favorite is like two little kids on top of each other's shoulders in a trench coat. Yes, <laughs> or 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 se- or in an animated uh, or, uh, film, uh, several animals. Yes, or Muppets right. is a, a yes. Is my head is the most classic example, but I don't yeah. even know who the first person to do that joke is. But <laughs> there is something of like it's pretty great. Well, yeah, and their and their imp- their impersonate their vocal impersonation is usually the giveaway. Yeah. Yes. But then, like, I mean, Bojack Horseman. tickets to unbearable lightness of being. <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> but then Bojack Horseman is still doing a riff on it, but hypothetically, yeah. someone else can do it. I mean, there are certain things of, like, there are now things that we are signifiers of, of sitcom comedies, which I I think allows people to kind of tell people, hey, well, this is supposed to be funny or this is a, this is a sitcom, even if it doesn't necessarily have other giveaways. <laughs> I think it was on The Simpsons again. The uh, the the whole bit with uh, um, Principal Skinner inviting uh, the, uh, what's his name? The, oh, Chalmers. Superintendent Chalmers, Chalmers. Superintendent Chalmers over to his house for dinner and... Uh, <laughs> Skinner? <laughs> serving him, these are steamed hams. <laughs> Delicious steamed hams. Uh, because it's like, like ordinary smoke. hamburgers. It's like there's a lot of smoke. And it's like, no, 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 it's steam. Steam. It's steam. <laughs> yes, well, yes. Well, a lot of these are things that you would, you know, traditionally, well, we would kind of think of as bad jokes, right? Like they're not like well, sophisticated jokes. Well, they're, they're, well, this is like, uh, now I'm going to completely like cut up in the frog of it, but they're jokes <laughs> that are stupid, but like right. they're done intentionally. And they're and, self-aware. Yes. So the, the idea is um, the sort of benign offense of it is that these are gr- grown-ups made this show and it's stupid isn't that like a silly thing we're doing right uh, which is like my favorite genre of joke basically which is like you know a pun that is a person you can tell is doing a bad pun but it's like oh isn't it funny that like a grown-up decided to do that that's what a lot of these are opposed to 
Were you, were you thinking of talking about the one day at a time? I was shows? trying to transition a little. <laughs> you, you caught me, Jesse. I know. Yeah. So, what's the difference between a a one day at a time bad joke and these types of jokes? I don't. I actually don't. It's hard for me. I still have not figured it out. My feeling about one day at a time's jokes because the writing is very good and the jokes are very bad. Well, some of them aren't bad, I would say, but some of them are very bad. Some of them, the but they're wor- very intentionally like. They fit into the style of this show. I Jesse, would what's an example of one that you? Thought I wish was really I, bad? I, 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 I should have studied up. I can't remember. Basically, everything the younger brother says is like uh-huh. a bad joke, and it, it's hard for me to think of examples. They're just like kind of, I imagine, kind of like Disney Channel jokes. Yeah, I mean that's like, what it's typical from, sitcom joke. Yeah, typical like, but I think I don't associate that with a thing that we think of as like a, a more one adult and modern thing. I think like one day at a time is pitched to be something a little bit higher brow than that. So it's mm-hmm. interesting to me to see how those jokes fit into those circumstances. And the, and I'm, when I talk about jokes, I mean like the joke jokes, not necessarily like Rena Moreno will do things that are just funny kind right. of just by being a person that's so exciting to watch. But like when they really do like a wind up and a pitch type of a joke, I, it's, it's interesting to me as a person who kind of has an ear for it th- that they sound like wrong notes. But I've heard other people defend that that's kind of like the thing they're going for. Yeah, I see. One of the things I thought was so fascinating about that show was how, you know, Norman Lear is in his 90s. Yeah. And, you know, I don't even know how many sitcoms he's produced. It's unbelievable. I mean, he's been active in the business since the early 70s. And this is very much a Norman Lear sitcom. And it could have aired in like 1978 and even the way it's shot. You know, like they, they, you know, it's just everything about it. It's like almost as retro. It's not quite as retro as Horace and Pete, but it's yeah. close. Yeah. And the rhythm of the jokes that you talk about, like, I feel like I, I had that moment where I had to sort of adjust my ear to something that was like, aside from this, the characters and the situations, yeah. which were new, the cultural situations yeah. were something I hadn't seen before on TV. Everything else about it was like, oh, my God, I'm in a time machine. <laughs> yeah. I'm in a time machine and I'm 10 years old and I'm watching CBS on a Saturday night. Like, yeah. that's what it felt like. And the rhythm of the jokes, there was almost like we talk about this ritualized quality and there's almost like a kabuki sort of yeah. ritualization to that sort of wind up and pitch like yeah. you're talking about. And like the badness of it in a way is almost weirdly comforting if everything else is done like yeah. in a consistent way. But, you know, but you got to take that with a grain of salt, you know, with me because I'm, I am, I am a notoriously easy mark for stupid, stupid, <laughs> stupid jokes. Like generally speaking, the dumber the joke, the harder I laugh. And like my daughter calls it mitochondrial humor, you know, like evolutionarily the lowest form of humor yeah. there is. Like it, like B movie, that's a movie that every time that's on, I, I watch it and I laugh. I laugh like Robert De Niro is Max Cady watching Problem Child, Child 2 in Cape Fear. I'm yeah. like, ah, 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 ah. I mean, the scene at the end where, you know, they make Sting go back to, to calling himself Gordon Sumner as terms of the legal settlement slays me every yeah. time. No, I, I think it is. I think what's interesting is that idea of the rhythm of it. And I think that's why I, I almost got into it. But I think I didn't listen, watch enough episodes in a row. But there is a thing about binging comedies that I think does work, that you kind of lock into the universe of the music they're playing. Mm. You, you you either don't you don't hear the jokes as as hard or you kind of just kind of like, I you get do, it. I'm like yeah, riding the it wave. It teaches of it. you to watch it that way. And then you kind of just accept it. Yeah, I just and, always am like, there was a person writing down and saw that joke and be like, great, next <laughs> sentence to work on. I can't, well, it's hard for me to believe, but I guess that is the point. Something that I struggle with, though, is that I watch, for example, like a Kevin Can Wait, the, yeah. the Kevin James sitcom on CBS that is, I, I find it intolerable. Yeah. And it's and it's retro for in a lot of the same ways that we're talking about one day at a time, but in one day at a time, it doesn't it doesn't bother me. Yeah. And, I, and I feel like when I'm watching a show like Kevin Can Wait, there's a and I can't articulate why I feel this way, but it just feels lazy to me in mm-hmm. a way that one day at a time does not. Yeah. Like, well, it feels the... like there's a heart, beating heart behind one day at a time. Right. Even if some of the jokes are a little bit um, cliche, that is not there on a show like Kevin Can Wait. The characters are so well drawn that it feels kind of sweet, I think, as yeah. opposed to like there's an undertone. Abrasive. There's a weird undertone of nastiness to a lot of these network sitcoms that yeah. are built mm-hmm. around uh, around guys. Yeah. That are built around guys like Kevin James. I've always had that problem with Kevin James. You know, I've always felt that. And like two and a half men I found excruciating because um, I always thought like this works much better if they would just say that Charlie Sheen's character was a vampire. (laughs) If he was like a like a horrible vampire, like like Playboy 
Yeah. You know, because he seemed so profoundly amoral in every yeah. way that it was like, this is kind of a gross show yeah. to me. Well, they're, it's cynical. And I, I mean, at, on a, like a basic level, they don't, they're not clarifying what the point of the joke is and who the butt of the joke is. Yes. And if Charlie Sheen's supposed to be bad or good. And I think that's like a big problem with shows that are supposed to have like, you know, um, all in the family succeeded hypothetically because <laughs> you knew Archie Bunker was like wrong at the end at certain yes. point. Where these shows were like, Charlie Sheen is bad, and at no point do they necessarily do you think the show says he is bad? Well, you also get off on his cruelty. Yeah. And, that, and that show yeah. that he did for uh, FX was basically the same show, yeah. Anger Management. And, and you know, and but that's what, I, you know, that's what I guess you could call the, um, it's the Fonzie effect. You know, like he's he's not supposed to be the main character on the show. He's supposed to be the antagonist or the foil or the or the wacky character. Yeah. And the the show sort of naturally, I think every television show, this is true up to some degree, but TV shows tend to naturally coalesce around the most dynamic character on the show, regardless of whether yeah. they're intended to be the lead. And I think that happened with Two and a Half Men. And it's like, and it's it's just intuitively obvious, I think that 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 would happen because Charlie Sheen's character is the most interesting dynamic character on the show, even though he's. Uh, revolting. I, I wonder if that feeds into, and this is, I can't remember where I first heard this theory, but it's essentially that when sitcoms start, they they hire a lot of veterans to write the show. And then they have like a couple babies who just like, like writing jokes. And then essentially as the show goes on, those veterans get fancy new jobs or they get their own shows. And then these babies who just wanted to write jokes now are in charge of the show. And they just want to keep on writing jokes for the characters they like. So the next thing you know, Charlie Sheen's this, the star of the show or mm-hmm. Urkel's the star of the show to use like two extreme mm-hmm. examples. Yeah. But I think it just, you know, the the weight of where the show's balance switches over time and people like, you know, it's like anything. It's like you feed the hot hand because you're like, oh, they just, you know, when you're a joke writer, if that's your priority, you're going to want to just figure out who's funny, especially if it's not a show where everyone can hit it out of the park every time. I think Seinfeld got around that by having all four of the characters be wacky sidekicks. Yeah. (laughs) Or like Kimmy Schmidt gets around it in the same way where everyone is so good. But I think like some more recent examples, I think New Girl is constantly fighting to try to figure out how to like make sure it stays stable because they have such, they figure out how to make everyone so funny that it's hard to figure out where the story is. Um, Or, and I think in a, uh, Girls also had that issue where they, they felt like there was that I can't maybe season two or season three where they're like, someone was like, Shoshana is so funny. Let's just have Shoshana be right. a sitcom character, like a traditional sitcom character in whatever Girls was trying to do, which I think it is. I think Girls is a very funny show, but there is a tone that like Shoshana had for a for few a episodes that was just like, this is not a real person, and everyone else right. is a real well, person. The show is I I like the humor on the show most when it's you're laughing at what the person is saying and like it's a the character that is funny, yeah. you know, like, and it makes sense that that character is saying something funny. When they're because, oblivious yeah. somehow. When they're oblivious and also when, like, you can, you just know Hannah is a funny person. Yeah. And, like, she is a funny person within this universe. She's not just saying things the writers wrote that happen to be funny. And, yeah, it's interesting because uh, they the characters are all, a lot of them are smart, which is interesting mm-hmm. that you, they're, they're, they, they say literate jokes that you're to like, yeah, I can imagine these people do it. They went to like decent schools that they would read these books. I was there was there was I was watching uh the first episode of last season at the wedding and then um Adam and whatever Hannah's old uh the teacher boyfriend were like having conversation Fran. Fran but the conversation was just like uh, uh how 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 uh, um uh you know not, nothing nothing doing but oh good 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 look uh, if you need me to I, I can I can just no 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 I didn't just, I'm not, I didn't just... No, I figured with the, with the, uh... Yeah, but it's... Yeah, 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 yeah. Why don't you guys try a few complete sentences? And they can talk, and then Ray was just like... This conversation sounds like a fucking E. Cummings poem. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you're like, yeah, Ray would say that. Like, Ray <laughs> likes comedy. I, like, you can imagine there's a backstory where, like, Ray tried to be a comedian when he was younger, just because he has, like, a lot of comedy things around his apartment. Um, but also, they're just so good at... I still think one of the funniest moments and I've talked to you about uh, Gazelle about this which was I think the end of season one where Hannah falls asleep on the subway and then she gets everything stolen but she has the piece of cake and she's just eating cake on the beach by herself and she's smiling and I'm like that is so that's like a perfectly captured 
hilarious moment of a completely unaware human being. <laughs> yes, and yet also, to me, that's a beautiful moment. Yeah, it is that's a beautiful, a beautiful moment. moment. Like, to me, I don't even see that moment as comedy. Like, that's like that's like a moment, like, the perfect ending of a short story would yeah. be a moment. Like, that's a kind of short story that I don't think Hannah would be capable of writing. You know? I don't know. Yeah. This season, it seems like, Th- this next season, from what I've seen, it seems like they really want to be like, she's good at writing. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which I always, thought at, she, I always thought she was a good writer. I, well, I think, and that E. Cummings example is a good one. They're just very good at picking a, a, a cultural example yes. and applying it to a situation. And you're like, yes, they're that is so, the razor so, sharp right thing. They're so precise. And there's this one moment in the new upcoming season where... Um, someone is talking to Hannah about bumping into Chris Noth on the street. <laughs> and she says, Chris Noth of Law and Order? And, like, of course, it's just so funny because they don't use the Sex and the City re- reference. Yes, they yes. use the Law and Order one on the show Girls. It's like a, so it's like a meta kind of yeah. joke. Yes. So that's, like, more of, I guess, a, a writer's being funny joke. But, like, it's... Like this is what you've talked about, Jesse. Like what a like what a writer's joke is, which Oh sure. If you could talk a little about that. Oh sure. So I think, you know, there's jokes that I can't remember the exact criteria that I laid out, but essentially jokes that seemingly the a writer made and it's like okay. Like essentially like maybe the the amount of information would be beyond um the scope of what a person would know. Like and but it's still okay because it kind of to quote (laughs) quote uh Alan Alda in um, uh, Crimes and Misdemeanors, though this was apparently supposed to be making fun of this, which is like if it bends, it's funny, but if it breaks, it's not funny, which is essentially like pushing the bounds of like what a person might know. So I think you'd believe that these characters would know who Chris Noth is, right. obviously, and they know his name. And like, yeah, they probably know Sex and City, but like to push it a little bit further, to do a little bit more specific to say Law and Order gives you a sense that there's essentially like a God above this who's deciding what these people are saying. Right. right. And a little nod to that is is a thing that TV can do, especially because you have so much time that I think is okay. I mean, like, in terms of, like, big swing writer's jokes, I don't think anyone is doing it at the level of uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt is, which will have, like, such elaborate, like, 30-second premise that are just jokes. I, I, the example I think of, was it later in the season, um, Titus was saying he never wants to go to space. It's just rocks up there, and then he pulls rocks out of his pockets and throws them on the table. <laughs> <laughs> Quitters are America's unsung heroes. Without us, we'd probably still be going to the moon. It's just rocks, Rick. We've got plenty of rocks down here. Why? Why would he have rocks in his pocket? But it's a hard... It's it, That is... I would say it's the level of difficulty, difficulty in jokes like that in non-sitcoms... I mean, in non-animated shows is pretty high because you mm-hmm. really have to establish a world where people will believe that's okay that it happens. Yeah. And, and Kimmy Schmidt does in 30 Rock... Actually, Kimmy Schmidt probably does it more than even 30 Rock did. 30 Rock pushed over time, and eventually towards the end, they had a lamb on the uh, board for the cotton co- industry or whatever. Like, a, basically, they had a lamb, like, vote. It was yeah. it, but like, <laughs> to be like, yes, he can be a spokesperson. But I think Kimmy Schmidt really pushes it to be like, these characters have rocks in their pockets or... Um, when you, I mean, Justin, when you were talking about music before, I was trying to think, what is the musical equivalent of Kimmy Schmidt? And it just feels like a record that's on super high speed. Like, <laughs> yeah. there's just so much happening and so many jokes one right after the other that you almost have to watch an episode like two or three times to even process yeah. it. Yeah, I think it's a it's a level of, I mean, it's essentially like it's it's like a, a race to like who can get the most jokes into a thing. And I think, you know, like Seinfeld got to a certain level and then Arrested Development packed jokes in, but not necessarily you can tell the all. Essentially, like Arrested Development had a, an amount of jokes that was grand, but you can only maybe sit, like notice a few while you're going through, and then you watch back and you're like, oh, that's a reference to a thing that happened ten episodes from now. Right. Um, where Thirty Rock was for the most part like we're just going to have them say all the jokes. We're going to have them talk faster than people talk, and people just have to get used to it. And a lot of people. Uh, you know, the joke was that they couldn't. Like, people, like, they talk too fast. I mean, Arrested Development was, like you said, it was inside jokes. Yeah. And, and 30 Rock had that, too. And I, I actually think The Good Place has inside jokes as well. It's a different tone. Yeah. But, you know, for example, the one that, I mean, I guess, like, three or four minutes into the first episode, this was the joke that, like, I was like, okay, I'm all in on this show. <laughs> when um, Kristen Bell asked Ted Danson, like, which religion was right about heaven? And he's like, well, they all get it a little bit right. But there's this one 
guy, Doug, who's <laughs> the stoner from, I think, Vancouver or somewhere in Canada who, like, got high one night. And he, we were amazed how correct he was. He got 92% right. <laughs> and, and there's a big picture of Doug, like, on Ted Danson's wall. And every scene for the rest of the season, you always see that picture of Doug. And, yeah. and if you remember that, then it's still – it's funny to you every single time you see it. Mm. Um, and they made a lot of jokes about Florida. Florida was constantly <laughs> a source of humor throughout the whole season. And, again, it's, it, it's one of those things if you're watching the episodes back to back – it compounds upon itself, and it's an inside joke because you are part of this world. And it's appropriate for a show like that that is so much yeah. about world building, yeah. too. That's actually a recurring joke that I like a lot is when the people will repeatedly refer to a character or an event that is obviously everyone knows it. Everyone knows what it means, but you never actually see it. Yeah. Or you never meet the person. Like that. Who was that, who was that guy on my so-called life that they were always trying to make plans with? Oh, right. What was his name? Yes. But you never uh, you never in a met band. Him. Yes. What was his name? You never met him. The the lasting influence of waiting for uh, Godot, which is also another <laughs> joke. That's, that's true. No, a uh, funny note on the Doug from The Good Place is a comedy writer, Noah Garfinkel, who actually does not write on The Good Place. But I think he currently is a producer on New Girl, maybe. And, and so it's weird that he even, like, crossed over. Like, to me, he's just a comedian I know. Um but for some reason, they decided he's the perfect person to represent a Doug. stoner who got the meaning of the universe 92% correct. Ninety-two percent correct about heaven. Yeah, that's or true. hell, I guess. Spoiler. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if that's true. Like, you don't know now if Doug was you don't a, know what to a fallacy anymore. Yeah, Doug is the devil. <laughs> yeah, maybe Doug will come back as the devil. They'll probably get some <laughs> stunt casting two. for that. For Doug. Doug. No, for the devil. <laughs> for the devil, right? Jesse, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and be sure to check out Jesse's podcast, Good One, starting Monday, February 13th. We'll be back in a minute with Giovanni Ribisi. Vulture's Alex Jung recently sat down with Giovanni Ribisi, star of the new Amazon series Sneaky Pete. They talk about how he prepared for his role as a con artist, how his career has evolved over the years, and his time on Friends playing Phoebe's brother, Frank. So we have a very exciting interview today. <laughs> uh, we have Giovanni Ribisi in the room. Hi. Hi. Um, so we are, you are currently the star of a new series on Amazon called Sneaky Pete, mm -hmm. created by Brian Cranston, mm -hmm. where you play a con man named Marius Josipovic. 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 Yeah. He's very specific about how his name is pronounced. He is Josipovic. Right. Yeah, exactly. You saw the episode. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I enjoy that, that quirk that he sort of kept uh, correcting people on how mm -hmm. his real name is pronounced, <laughs> right. uh, because he's all about adopting different, different identities. identities. Exactly. I think that was... Uh, uh, a conscious thematic uh, uh, exercise in, in in the show, yeah. So the show is about um, a guy who is in uh, he, what starts out. Uh, my character Marius is in jail, uh, in prison. His cellmate, is, his name is Pete Murphy. He he gets tired of listening to all the stories. He's very verbose uh, uh, of of when he was younger and the more innocent days. And then when he's getting out of prison on a phone call to his brother, he finds out he's in trouble with Brian Cranston's character. Uh, so he uh, figures that is the easiest way or the, the most sensible thing to do is to try to go find the family of his old cellmate and assume the identity. Uh, he gets this, this uh, idea. And it's actually interesting because there was a, there was a documentary called The Imposter uh, right. where it, it, a real-life situation where a family – uh, lost their son who was 13 years old and then three years later um, uh, someone showed up to, the, to their doorstep and said I'm your son hmm. um, and the guy was, was actually from Spain and he had different color eyes mm -hmm. um, but he uh, I guess he filled a, I guess, a certain need for the parents uh, and the other family members uh, so much so to where he, he lived with them I think for several years right I like how uh, uh, pretending to be someone else is the path of least resistance for Marius. Here. Right, exactly. Yeah, right. That's a good point. Um, you know, he grew up, uh, and, and, and Brian uh, Cranston and I actually talked a lot about this, where he grew up uh, where his mother was strung out on dope and his, he, there was no father there. Um, and it, it was basically fraternity turned into paternity not to, that sounds really corny but uh for his brother and that that was the, the the really the only thing that he had and he 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 needed to survive um and and so 
that was the sort of uh, road to empathy for me, at least, as far as looking at uh, the approach to the character. I guess, and that goes for really any character, because um, he is he he's deviant. I don't think he's malicious uh, per se, but I think that he he just grew up in a situation where most people would think to go left, he would go right, you right. know, and um, it was really kind of brilliant on 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 the the, the writer's part. The the scenario, all he wants to do is really extricate uh, extricate his brother from the situation. But it seems like every time he does go right, he he, he gets deeper and deeper uh, into uh, into a situation, and then and then that expands, of course, into the other opponents, uh, um, which are really the family members that he he's living with. And, and the skeletons that they have in, in, in the closets, um, in their own closets, I should say. Right. I mean, uh, it's interesting when you were talking about the documentary, The Imposter, mm-hmm. um, it sounds like there's a need that uh, that the conned have mm-hmm. um, that needs to be fulfilled in some ways. And that, yeah, there, that's interesting that, uh, that you say that. There's a book called The Confidence Game that, that really is about the psychology of being conned. It's really phenomenal and, and uh, um, speaks a lot to uh, a fundamental sociological uh, uh, point uh, for anybody in, in a civilized world, but also just in any in any sort of uh, civilization, um, where the regard or the, the of of the con artist and what their intentions are, and 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 the ethics of um, how far they will go, but also. Um, Putting a lot of the responsibility on the people that are conned with with um, that social need and the expense of so much in their lives and, and sometimes themselves, so that they can have, I guess, to a greater or lesser degree, that recognition. Right. Um, so I'm curious how how was this project originally pitched to you, and was it Brian Cranston who? Yeah, well, it was sort of the 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 the, the normal routes. Uh, the, my agent uh, reached out to me and said that there's a script. It's Sneaky Pete. Brian Cranston is doing it. David Shore, and then at the it was the was the showrunner at the, at the time when when the show was originally at CBS. Because I don't know if you know that we, we were originally with CBS, and then Seth Gordon who was producing but also going to direct the, the the first episode and he's a uh, uh, really an extraordinary talent a, a, a great director um and then and and it was for me i went in and and looked at something i i made this promise to myself that i would never do uh hour-long ep- episodic television for networks um that was just my thing because i just had heard that that was going to be that was that was the the toughest job for any actor um, yeah, I can only, that you, their hours are insane the I think. hours and then also just the length of time that that's that you go i think 10 months and it's just kind of like you go into a hole right so wait uh, so were you attached to it uh at cbs um yeah well that was the thing so but but with brian's involvement and being a fan of david shores and seth it was something that i thought well in this case instead of going left let's go right you know and let's let's uh explore this we did the pilot it was indeed one of the the more challenging things uh, i've ever done and then cbs didn't didn't pick it up and, mm-hmm. and and i hadn't heard and then i think six or seven months went by and then i got a phone call from david and and brian saying that amazon's interested and and they asked me what i thought about that and i thought oh well that's a whole that's a whole different medium really that's going into shows like uh, i guess the first show was House of Cards, mm-hmm. when it was like, okay, we're going to make a 10-hour feature film. I, gu- I guess that institution really did also exist with, you know, HBO or miniseries or, you know, this, but but this is something where... It's proliferated to a yeah, degree. Yeah. And it, it is that, it, it, in a business sense, it's that, it's that what is that book, The Blue Water Strategy, Blue Ocean Strategy, where um, it, they need to rattle the cage a little bit. And mm-hmm. it, need, it helps them to formulate a, a, a forum where it's uh, it's the Wild West and, and what their statistics are really based on quality. So knowing that, and I guess more or less um, as an actor wanting to exploit that, I was over the moon yeah. about it being with Amazon. Um, and that you don't have to do a 22-episode procedural. Yeah, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, <laughs> I, I don't want to get – I mean, I'm, I'm – I'm not afraid of, of hard work. I mean, at the end of the day, right. you know, that it is what it is. And, and it's, it's, it becomes, 
if you, for me, if you respect the people and they are all on uh, this a focused effort to try to do the best job that they can and, and sh- stretch their own parameters, then no matter what, I mean, even if it's a commercial or um, a, adult entertainment, I don't care. I, you know, we're there to, to do something uh, that's effective. Uh, so Amazon wants to, to try it out. And the way they do it is, is interesting because they do a pilot and then they put it out there and they, and it's picking it up or whether the show goes or not is based on audience response. It's based on a direct connection right. with an audience, which I think is even more encouraging. And so then I guess, you know, uh, the, uh, goes out saying that the audience responded and, and, um, at that point, Brian had decided to come on and act in the show as well, Hmm. which was great for everybody, you know, and that was, um, I mean, I think that you see someone like that doing what, what they do, you know, I think he's one of the great American actors, Yeah, you know, and then, so apparently as he, as he explained it, he said to Graham Yost, who was the new showrunner, David uh, Shore decided to go off and do another project. Graham came on from Justified Mm -hmm. and the Americans and he said, so, yeah, I want to support the show. Uh, put me in it as much as you want and however, you know, but thinking that it would be just coming in here and there. Mm-hmm. And then it turned out that Graham made him into the the primary antagonist. Right. Really, I mean, he's in every episode and it was it was kind of like a return to this new medium. That, that's yeah, so yeah. It must be interesting to work with Brian, both in terms of like both as an actor and then also I believe he directs some of the episodes. What was it like working with him as a director? It's it really is uh, like working with an actor and, and, a, and an approach to it like that. So his focus, because he's very savvy when it comes to camera work and what he wants to do and where he wants to put a camera to tell the story. But I think that a lot of his work with when we were on set was, was specifically with actors and behavior mm-hmm. and because it's not just already an established show and here's what the characters are doing um it's also there at the genesis of okay well um you know we're doing this well why don't we try this and see how that works and it's sort of almost experimental so um so it's a pleasure you know um i'm i'm curious if you uh in, in researching the role because you play a confidence man did you I don't know. Did you hang out with some con artists? Yeah, they, well, that there there was that a little bit. Um, but I think the book, The Confidence Game, really was the thing that for me was, uh, was the most inspiring. Uh, Wait, so did you learn how to pickpocket too? Um, yeah, there's a little bit of that. And, and it's training kind of like it's an immediate thing. I mean, it's, it's not necessarily a craft that you learn theoretically as much as it is a, a craft that you learn by practicing uh-huh. and getting good at it. And here's your wallet. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's where it was. I was reading too that Brian said that it was that he pitched it to you as a breaking good. <laughs> yeah, in a way. And and is it that or is it is it evolving into that? I don't know. Um, I think uh, structurally and 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 thematically, Breaking Bad is one of the great stories that's been put on film Mm -hmm. for me personally i think that taking that and and seeing uh this person turn into that amazing i don't know we'll see we'll see what happens i think that they 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 have some concept of where he ends up i i don't think that he's necessarily a, a my character is necessarily a bad person um sure again i think it's just about survival and this is how he's learned to survive yeah, this is how he grew up. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like a job in some ways. Um, yeah, but there is there is a titillating <laughs> factor there. There is something right. that's like that's exciting about it and and addictive, really. I I'd like to get your thoughts, I guess, just on the idea of the con artist because it you know they're a figure that has been in pop culture for so long. I think people are really obsessed with mm-hmm. uh, you know the idea of playing different guises, uh, shedding identities, and also asking ourselves what is real. Mm-hmm. In, in terms of that person's relationship to other people. Because mm-hmm. I assume that we'll see, or people will see with your character, that you will grow to have affection for the people that you're uh, ostensibly conning. Maybe, yeah. Maybe. Who knows? Or maybe it, they're just, um, they're bound because of of necessity. And there's a certain sort of, I personally, if I had my druthers, I wouldn't necessarily 
go the route of being saccharine or mm-hmm. oh we love each other so we're gonna excuse <laughs> lying and and i mean i guess you know i right i, don't I would think tend it could to go, end well <laughs> yeah i would yeah tend to go towards um something that's a little bit more desperate and the 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 times that pop culture or film has embraced uh this story or this character for me you know, they start out, for instance, like with movies like The Grifters right. or um, other films. They start out in the nice suit, being confident, being on top of the world, being dangerous and powerful. And then they end up groveling in the street at mm. the end. And and um, not that it needs to be a morality tale, but I think that's something that changed. Um, I don't know. That's in, that's interesting, you know? Mm-hmm. You have been, I was looking at your IMDb page, and you've been in the industry for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. And like 31 years, basically. Mm-hmm, yeah. How? <laughs> that was specific. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> Something well, so, that I just learned. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I could say that because I the your first IMDb credit was the year I was born. So I was like, oh, so it's literally oh he's been working as long God. as I've been alive. Wow. wow. Sorry. Not, not, no, no, no. It's great. Yeah. I think it's amazing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I'm sort of curious, like, how your approach to roles, to... All of that has changed over the past three decades, essentially. Well, I mean, yeah, it's changed drastically. I don't, I'm definitely not the same actor that I was when I was nine years old. And I think that that's just because um, he, my intentions or what my, my goals or whatever mm-hmm. uh, aspirations with it were different. Originally, I, I uh, grew up in the 70s and in Los Angeles during the, the this the new blockbuster era. And I think, uh, uh, star Wars was even the first film that I saw, uh-huh. um, in the movie theater. And then for a while I didn't, I didn't want to, uh, I wanted to be an actor. And then, and then I think it turned out to be this sort of like the wizard of Oz story where you get, you know, you finally get that job and you on a show or something like that. I was, I was 10 or 11 years old and it, it turned into something else that I didn't think it was. And almost, uh, you know, then puberty hits and everything's embarrassing and, and you're going out in front of an audience and doing it. And so then I, I, um, got really into music for several years until uh, a friend of mine introduced me to the actress studio and, and Marlon Brando and Robert De Niro and Gary Oldman mm-hmm. and, and, and people who, who sought to, to, to penetrate and have and have uh an experience and affect people and it was and it really was a revolution for me Mm. um and that that then that's i think when i really decided that i wanted to chase being an actor and uh you know i think a lot of the i mean at least for me and i know that people around my age a lot of your roles were uh really iconic in like suburbia um even uh for me it was like watching you on friends oh yeah um sort of uh, encapsulating i think a lot of this like gen x uh slacker culture Mm -hmm. that that sort of we associate with the 90s yeah yeah exactly i guess yeah the slacker culture but i still think that for the last 20 years we've been in a phase that's still musically uh, for film, for plot, for whatever, uh, writing, uh, or in this ultra conservative time period, hmm. if you hold it up against what, what they were doing in the seventies and the sixties and how experimental it was, there was actually during that, uh, acting class, um, Quincy Jones came to talk, oh. uh, to the class and uh he spoke for i think a good three hours and one of the things i'll never forget he said he was working in the studio with miles davis and miles davis was talking to another musician there and he said hey do you ever uh do you ever try to play the wrong note Hmm. um, to try to do do what's wrong what what the the herd isn't doing so that you can get all the way out there and figure out some form of originality and, and and come back you know and i think that um i don't know when you have a sociology that's based on a popularity contest and and quantified with how many followers right. you have or how many likes or how many hearts have turned red 
um, it's difficult, you know, the, 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 yeah. it's this strange, uh, thing of acceptance, I guess. What do you think sort of needs to happen to, for, for a more experimental or radical kind of filmmaking or narrative storytelling to come back? I don't know. I, you know, I, there was something that I was watching this, um, uh, interview that Francis Ford Coppola was doing and he was, he, um, he was talking about how the uh, uh, films might be analogous to uh, the novel and the evolution of the novel mm -hmm. in that way, and how you might have um, uh, parallel plots and, and, and certain things. I think that one of the last, I mean, I think that there's been many, but true um, sort of... Uh, the first thing that comes to my mind, not the, not the last at all, but but a, a, a marked point in filmmaking was Pulp Fiction, where that was based. You know, the, it was just like something that we had never seen and so yeah. radical, um, uh, and created almost its own style of filmmaking. It did, you know. Um, how 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 you don't even remember that you're not old enough. Oh, well, you I watched born it later. <laughs> <laughs> how do you know this? I watch. You know, I watch Pulp Fiction no, like, later. For instance, like, well, like my dad says when you know I take for granted Jimi Hendrix, but my dad said said that when that record came out, um, the, he said I, he said he felt literally like the the color of the sky had changed. Mm. You know, that it was like a, a new world. Was there a role like that ever for you? No, not yet, not yet. Um, I'm still looking for it, and I won't. Yeah, I, 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 I don't, I don't think yet. Yeah. Well, I know that we have to let you go oh, soon. Oh shoot! Sorry. But um, I yeah. do want to for for in the in the interest of populism, mm -hmm. I did want to talk to you about a fan theory uh, or like people who are obsessed with Friends. Obviously, you know there's a huge mm -hmm. fan base. Um, know that you appeared as an extra very early on in the show mm -hmm. as someone who drops a condom into yeah. Phoebe's guitar case. Mm -hmm. And then later you came on as, uh, yeah. as her brother. Mm -hmm. Was that ever something that was talked about with producers or pointed out or? No, it's interesting. I, I did a, it, I did a, uh, another show with the same producers um, concurrent with friends uh -huh. and they had two shows going simultaneously. And I guess the network decided to pick up one of them and not pick up the other. Um, and so I, I knew them and I, they were friends of mine. And, and I, so during that time, I mean, I started working on friends. I think it was like, I think it's 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, it's like 1995, I think. Yeah. Um, so longer than that, my God. <laughs> um, and, 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 um, a lot of it, you know, they would call up and they would say, come on, can you just come and do this thing? It's just, you got to throw the condiment in. So then I, I would do that. And, um, I was, I think I was m mainly focused on trying to do, uh, movies at the time and, right. and, and, and whatever. Um, but th so they would, you know, I would do that. And so many times when I would do an episode, I, w I would be working on another film, honestly, and coming from that set to showing up, having a script be put in, in front of me. <laughs> and as I'm walking, looking at it and trying to remember, 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 and then walking on and doing it. Uh -huh. And so honestly, I, I don't, I have vague recollections of it. Um, of doing but that. It's, yeah. It's uh, so no, having that dynamic and then having people come up and quote lines. I have no, I don't remember. I don't remember at all. I know that the, the cast, they're just some of the nicest people. And I think they did something on a pop culture level that, that really impinged and there's something to learn from that. Cool. Well, thank you so much, yeah, Giovanni, thank you, for coming and thanks on. Thanks for having me. That's just about it for this week's show. But before we go, it's time for this week's Aria. This week, it's my turn. Fox's 24 spinoff, 24 Legacy, opens with a home invasion scene. The camera pans slowly through a suburban house past a photo of a mother, father, and daughter before swooping up to a piece of artwork hanging on the wall. Inside the frame is a child's drawing splattered with blood, our clearest sign that something is very wrong with this picture, if the comically ominous music playing wasn't clear enough for you. We've searched everywhere, it's not here, one brown man says to another. For Sheikh bin Khalid, he intones, before shooting the father in the head and walking out the door, past the mother, slumped against the wall with her throat slit and the child's lifeless legs. 
These are the first images Americans saw after the New England Patriots faced off against the Atlanta Falcons during the most American of traditions, Super Bowl Sunday. 24 Legacy premiered in the coveted Super Bowl lead-out slot, one of the most watched TV hours of the year. Moving from the all-American sport straight into American-killing Muslims is a jarring transition any day, but even more so after a week where people across the U.S. filled the streets to protest the Trump administration's unconstitutional ban on seven predominantly Muslim nations. In this context, 24 Legacy is a painful reminder of why so many Muslims have been banned from entering the country. Post-9-11 fears of the radical Islamic terrorist and the presumption that you're guilty while Muslim, a narrative that pop culture has been playing into for years. The Islamic terrorist narrative is not atypical for 24, a show that has never been known for its subtlety, or for TV in general. Hollywood has hardwired depictions of bad Muslims into the popular imagination since 9-11 to make them completely unremarkable. During its original run, 24's popularity was in part tied to how much it tapped into America's fears post-9-11. The first season premiered in November 2001, two months after the attacks. The second one was the first to incorporate Muslim terrorists, a plotline Fox capitalized on with billboards that read, they could be next door. Season four is when Islamic activist groups started to get pissed. One plotline features a seemingly normal Muslim-American family leading a double life as radical terrorists. The storyline climaxes when the wife, Dina, wants her teenage son to kill his American girlfriend. When he can't do it, she takes matters into her own hands and poisons her. It was so controversial, the Council on Islamic-American Relations sat down with 24 producers, a, con- a conversation that resulted in Kiefer Sutherland reading a PSA that aired during the fourth season reminding Americans that the American Muslim community stands firmly behind their fellow Americans in denouncing and resisting all forms of terrorism. 24 Legacy's arrival at this moment in American history highlights the awkward tension inherent to TV reboots, particularly ones linked to a larger, arguably dated, cultural discourse. In many ways, 24 reflected the Bush era's war on terror mentality and was largely accepted by critics and viewers at the time within that context. When a show reboots, especially one with such explicit political overtones, should it pretend like nothing has changed in its absence? In the case of 24 Legacy, in some ways, things haven't changed. Terrorists from predominantly Muslim nations are still viewed as America's primary enemy. But in important ways, the context has shifted. Americans are now more aware of the fact that equating Muslims with terrorism has consequences and that words and images can deeply influence the political climate. I should note that not all villains on 24 have been Muslim and not all portrayals of Muslims on 24 are negative. But Muslim people on the show still often interface with the question of whether or not they are terrorists. One of 24's tendencies is to give a quote-unquote good Muslim character a subplot to offset the show's more damning portrayals. Its view of Muslims swings between two extremes, good Muslim, bad Muslim. In the eyes of the state, you either support terrorism or you're a quote-unquote peace-loving Muslim. 24 Legacy's good Muslim storyline hinges on whether or not a campaign director for a presidential candidate has terrorist ties. This use of morality as character development goes back to season two of the show, where one subplot revolves around a white woman's fear that her sister's fiancé, Reza, has ties to radical Islam. He's eventually redeemed, but only after the show expends a huge amount of effort to make you think he's definitely a terrorist. As in Reza's case, even if a character turns out to be good, it's only after creating a baseline assumption of guilt, essentially putting them on trial and forcing them to prove their innocence— while making aesthetics choices, threatening music, suspicious glances, the character simply speaking Arabic, that further make you doubt their morality. It's a setup that's typical of political thrillers. Is this person who I really think he is? And it's been applied to white villains on 24 as well. The difference is Muslims lose their humanity when they're turned into symbols of right and wrong, while white people don't get stuck with the stereotype. There are moments on 24 Legacy when the show explicitly critiques the state, moments when it says that Islamophobia is bad. But 24 is not about the instances when it pays lip service to ideas it doesn't have the range to do justice. The show's politics are most apparent when you judge it on an aesthetic level rather than a textual one. And the aesthetic of 24 is such that it's the most evocative elements that you remember. It's a visceral show meant to provoke a visceral response. The moments that stay with you are the ones that leave you feeling sad, 
scared, angry, or exhilarated. This time around, it might just leave a bad taste in your mouth. That's it for this week's show. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Jordan Bell. Laura Mayer is our director of production, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mami, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellefant. I'm Matt zoller Sites, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt zoller Sites. I'm Jen Cheney, and you can find me on Twitter at Cheney J. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.